Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Clinical Signs Podcast. My name is Dr. Matthew Panarella. I'm at episode 12. Yay. Just about, uh, I was checking some of my statistics, about 100 downloads, which hey, is really great. I wanted to clarify something that I think is important because it refers to, this refers back to what my goal is with this podcast. And my goal is to inform and educate. And I think there's a difference between the two. Inform is, I think, relatively straightforward. It's providing you information or, you know, not necessarily in this case, but reading information, seeing something. And I think that's all well and good because you can you can, you can get quite a bit of information if you spend time doing research, reading, you know, watching a documentary, listening to podcasts, what have you. I think education is different. I think education in my mind means you have information and then you take it and do something with it. So where information I think is good, you can you can build up a knowledge base, but without utilizing that information via education, then I think that although you're not doing anybody a disservice, you might be doing yourself a disservice, but education is really using that information that you've learned and putting it into use for yourself. So I just wanted to tell you how I think about about these things. Oh, I can obviously I can inform you. I can give you some tips, some tricks, some, you know, tidbits of facts, but it's up to you to do this. So really this is a partnership. Yes, it's me doing these podcasts, me putting out this information, but it really is all up to you how you end up taking this take taking this information and, and what you choose to do with it. So I hope that the information has been helpful and that whoever you are, wherever you are, that you can take some of this and apply it into your life with, um, you know, with your pets and animals that you might come in contact with. I wanted to talk about behavior. And one of the most common issues people have with their pet dog is that the dog is ill-behaved. And I see it all the time when I'm walking my own dog. People will have various leashes. They'll have harnesses. They'll have a leash uh, attached to a collar, number one, that's, you know, a choker collar we can go back and forth on, but the animal does not even have a choker collar on. It's got some sort of uh, easily slipped off collar and people have a leash and maybe the people are not that attentive and the dog is pulling them. So I see this all the time. Or somebody's got um, one of the retractable leashes, which I use on my dog, but I maintain my dog you know, close to me unless I let the dog off the leash in a place that I can do that. But I use a gentle leader. My dog, when I adopted my dog, I don't think the previous owner had ever walked the dog. And the dog, I don't think she hadn't been trained to walking on a leash. So I started with a choker collar and she just was not paying attention. And the more you jerk and pull on a choker, you put pressure on the trachea. And, you know, a little is okay. A lot is not so good. And I realized that that was not giving her enough feedback to tell her what I wanted her to do. So I went to a gentle leader and the gentle leader for my dog didn't take long for her to get accustomed to wearing it. She didn't love it at first. And uh, I broke her in with that. And now I solely use the gentle leader because it does give her a measure of feedback when she's not listening to me. And I think that there's a certain amount in dogs where they, they will behave, but sometimes if their systems get triggered, if you know if they're really smelling something or they're really interested in something, they might not listen to verbal commands. So I do use a gentle leader and I give it a gentle tug and she stops what she's doing right away. So I have found that to be extraordinarily effective. So for anybody that has a poorly behaved dog, the first thing I would say to you is get some good behavioral training. You may have already gone through behavioral training. It might not have been the best instructor, or maybe it was a good instructor and you're not able to follow through with the commands. Because you give a dog a command, you have to have the dog complete the command. If you call out a command to a dog and a dog doesn't do it, what are you teaching the dog? Well, you're teaching the dog to just ignore you. So the first thing is you have to have good follow through. Second of all, you have to have good uh, a good base under behavioral training and you can ask your local vet who they recommend. And I'm sure now online, you go online and you can find all sorts of uh, 
behavioral training, meaning it's training for the dog, but it's also training for you to apply the commands out when you're out with the dog or even at home. And then the second thing is I highly recommend for most dogs, a gentle leader. It is the it is the most effective leash that I have seen. Harnesses. Now there are some medical conditions where dogs can't have, you know, things on their face or around their neck. I get it. But 99.9% of all dogs, if they have, well, it's also going to be dependent on the kind of dog. Because if you have a dog that's got a very short muzzle or no muzzle, such as a pug, you're not going to be able to put a gentle leader on. But a dog with a muzzle that you can put a gentle leader on, it's going to be your best bet. Pugs are pretty much untrainable anyway, but that's a whole other story. So a little bit of uh, information on, on behavior and uh, gentle leaders. All righty, our next topic is vomiting and diarrhea. This is a very broad topic. Now, vomiting and diarrhea, like I said, are clinical signs. They're not actual diseases. They are caused by something. And something can be very minor, or something can be very significant and impactful to the animal. So I'm going to mention lots of different things here today. And uh, we're also going to have to differentiate vomiting from regurgitation. So let's start off with uh, the difference between vomiting and regurgitation. So vomiting, for the most part, the way I looked at it in, in clinical practice is it has to happen basically an hour, give or take, or more after an animal eats. Okay, Food is going to be mostly digested. Regurgitation, on the other hand, is generally a relatively immediate up to about, I'd say, 30 minutes after an animal eats, that food actually comes back and it's undigested. So that's important because when you're getting a history of an animal that's vomiting, first off, you need to decipher or determine, is it regurgitation or is it vomiting? Because the cause of regurgitation may not be the same as what's causing vomiting. It's going to clue you in maybe to different systems. Now, diarrhea is obviously pretty straightforward. There's actually several types of diarrhea. There's small bowel diarrhea. And uh, I don't want to get too graphic, but basically you're looking at stool that is uh, liquidy, that might be dark in color, might be brown, could be black. But it's mostly going to be soft to some sort of liquid. And then you're going to get large bowel, or you can get large bowel diarrhea, which is going to be somewhat different. You can have almost a fully formed stool, but you have mucus and or blood or just blood um, on the stool. Or it can be uh, it, it could be the same. It can be normal uh, brown and, and soft. Uh, you can get also a liquidy because most water in the... Um, and the GI tract is absorbed in the large intestine. And if the large intestine is not functioning properly, then you can still get that uh, that watery or or pudding-like consistency diarrhea. Now, it can, of course, impact cats and dogs equally. Let's say there's really no no big difference in the amount of vomiting diarrhea between cats and dogs. So let's explore some of the reasons why animals may have vomiting and or diarrhea. It's it's a very common finding. A lot of, you know, again, this could be the chief complaint when you call the animal hospital and say vomiting and diarrhea. And if you go back and reference that episode on uh, making a diagnosis on the animal's record in the back where the doctor is going to see it, they're going to write V slash D. And they might write for a week, whatever. Or the owner might have actually called and said, geez, my dog got into garbage and now it's got vomiting and diarrhea. So let's talk about some causes of vomiting and diarrhea, throwing some on regurgitation as well. So vomiting can be triggered by multiple things. So if you think about food, a dog is eating, although basically they don't really chew very much. They chew actually very little. They mostly swallow, for the most part, most of their food whole or or barely broken down because the way dogs molars work and even cats they're basically carnivores their teeth are really mostly designed to rip things apart even dry kibble they're going to chew it once or twice and then it's going going down their esophagus into their stomach so animals sometimes will eat relatively quickly and provided that the food is is not contaminated, it, it should be readily, easily digested. So sometimes you can get contamination in food, and that can take all sorts of 
that can take all sorts of, uh, of fashions. You could have food le le leftovers from the refrigerator that somebody feeds to an animal, and maybe it's spoiled by now and there's bacterial growth on there. A lot of those cases, the animal's going to vomit that back up realistically probably within a couple of hours. Um, or it could be it could be relatively recent. Obviously, if you feed an animal or an animal gets into the garbage, that's going to cause upset to the stomach. It's eating something that it wouldn't ordinarily digest. It could be very greasy, which sometimes animals have a very difficult time digesting. Even though they can't eat meat, they're not necessarily going to be able to digest you know a piece of fried chicken. So things that are heavily heavily fried, things that might be greasy, things that might be spicy. I'm, uh, of course, I hope it's evident to you that I'm not recommending any of those types of foods to, to feed your pets because it's going to be a very big problem, most likely. Not always, sometimes. I think most of the time, actually, it should be a problem. Uh, but I can't tell, you know, if you've been saying, well, I feed my dog fried chicken. Well, hey, doc, I feed my dog fried chicken once a week and there's never a problem. Okay, that's your dog. That's great. I'm looking out for everybody's pet. I'm not just looking out for your pet. So again, we also have to think about the frame of reference making these recommendations because again, we have population medicine versus individualized medicine. And it's the same thing about thinking about yourself and the population of human beings that you're a part of and how you may respond to things. So you have to take everything with in context. So if it works for your dog, it's okay. It doesn't necessarily mean it works for most dogs or or even I would say almost all dogs. There's always going to be exceptions to the rule. So you could have bad food. Uh in an older animal, let's let's take a cat, hairballs, very common. Cats groom themselves excessively not excessively, but cats will groom themselves, which is a normal process. And based on the way that their tongue works, their tongue has barbs on it, and they're going to collect quite a bit of hair, and they're going to swallow that hair, and it's going to end up in the stomach. And then what's going to happen is that hair is going to, I mean, the ideal is the hair is ingested, then the animal eats some food, then that hair is trapped up in the food, and then it's pushed out into the feces. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the hair turns into, it mats up into actually literally a ball. And I've seen animals, cats, with the entire stomach is a hairball. And sometimes that needs to be operated on to take all the hair out. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes there's a product such as laxatone, which can help push. It, it, it's basically Vaseline, which will help push the hair out into the GI tract so that it's it's pushed out when the animal uh, poops. And, you know, if you're an observant cat owner, you'll probably see some poops, some feces that actually has hair in it. Well, there you go. So depending on the amount of hair in the stomach, that can cause an actual obstruction to the exiting of food from the stomach into the upper small intestine. Dogs do groom. I haven't been exposed to a case where I've seen a hairball in a dog. It's not, again, impossible, but it's way less likely. Foreign bodies, relatively common. A foreign body is anything that really doesn't belong in the stomach. So technically, a hairball is a, is a foreign body. I've seen animals. Now, this case didn't, didn't run into vomiting and diarrhea. It probably would have, but the owner brought it in relatively rapidly after he saw the dog do it. Had a small dog eat razor blades. Why? I don't know. Dogs eat insane things. That's just what they do sometimes. Literally, the dog ate razor blades, and we had to remove those from the stomach. But uh, one time in a, on a dog that I had, when my dog I had, um, my kids had been playing, and I think they had had some money, and they had pennies. And common pennies now, in the modern era, basically are made of zinc with a very small coating of copper, and zinc is toxic to the kidneys. So I was concerned that our dog had ingested these pennies. And of course, my kids were pretty little, so you, you, you couldn't really find out for sure did the dog eat it or not. So anyway, I made my dog vomit. And lo and behold, there were no pennies, but there was all sorts of other things in there. So you, you might think, oh, not my dog, Doc, but most dogs are going to be ingesting things that are abnormal. Now, most of the time, 
they might never cause a problem. You might not know it. My dog now picks up rocks. Sure, she swallowed some rocks. Hasn't really caused her a problem. As long as she eats a small rock, it's not a big deal. Uh, but there's probably way more in that dog's stomach than you would even realize. So you can get gastritis, which is some sort of inflammation in the stomach, or you can get a foreign body, which is an obstruction to the outflow of food. And if the food is nowhere to go, it's going to go out. Okay. Because obviously the food goes into the stomach, it's it's somewhat chewed, and then the stomach is going to start to break down. For example, with the enzyme pepsin and the muscles in the stomach, it's going to churn up the food. It's going to mix it with mucus, saliva that's swallowed, pepsin, and it's going to start churning up and breaking down that food. And then the food is going to pass into the uh, upper small intestine called the uh, duodenum. And in, in the duodenum, that's where there's a connection from the uh, pancreas and the gallbladder to pushing in enzymes from the pancreas, such as amylase and lipase and bile. And lipase and bile help break down fats in foods. The pepsin helps break down protein from the stomach. And then um, lipase and amylase is breaking down carbohydrates. So food goes there. So sometimes when an animal vomits and you see green, that means there's basically bile coming from the upper small intestine, not the stomach, but it's going into the stomach and then coming back. Now, an animal that's going to vomit is generally going to be making heaving heaving motions with their abdomen, and you're going to see the dog. There's going to be these waves from the animal's abdomen pushing something back out. And in contrast, again, to we talked about regurgitation. Regurgitation, basically, it just comes right back out. There's almost no heaving going on. The food is just there. Let's talk about a young animal, for example, young kittens, young puppies. They might vomit. They might have diarrhea. And that could be to do due to something as, as per se simple as intestinal parasites like roundworms or ascarids. And those ascarids live in the small intestine, and they sort of are spaghetti-like, long, uh, white um, intestinal parasites, and they're taking up space and they're causing irritation. Many of these animals will have vomiting and or diarrhea secondary to basically the obstruction and the irritation of these roundworms. And that's simply managed by deworming the puppy. And all puppies and kittens should be dewormed multiple times, re regardless of their source. And this is a, a much more complicated topic than I really want to get into. But very briefly with parasites, it's not just a one and done because parasites have a, what's called a life cycle. And there's multiple stages to these life cycles. And the female parasites lay eggs. And what we look for when we run a stool sample, it, oh, we're looking for the eggs of these intestinal parasites. And sometimes the females are laying eggs and we see it under the microscope and sometimes they don't. But what also happens is the juvenile form of the parasite will migrate through organs such as the liver and the lung, which is what happens with roundworms. And then animals will actually cough up the juvenile and then the juvenile parasite goes back down, is swallowed, and it goes back into the GI tract, and then it, there it matures so that the female and the male can get together, the female will lay eggs, and the cycle just repeats. So you have to do dewormings for the most part on a schedule to make sure that you're getting all of the parasites, you know, kill what's in the GI tract, but you can't really kill, you can't kill the parasites in the tissues at the time. You have to wait till they mature and they get into the GI tract to kill them. So that that's a that, that's called a, a life cycle, and there's multiple dewormers. For example, that work very fine to get rid of roundworms, and this is true in in puppies and kittens or adult dogs and cats. Mostly, roundworms are a, a young animal, a, a juvenile puppy kitten disease, uh, but technically can happen in an adult. Uh, so that's a that's a really common one. I had already touched on. Um, feline parvo and canine parvo, which separate episodes on that. Both of those can cause vomiting and diarrhea. Uh, I've had another intestinal parasite, Giardia, which I've not diagnosed in cats, but I have diagnosed it in dogs. I've treated cats for Giardia. Um, but Giardia, I've, I've had puppies vomit with Giardia. And I've had puppies with soft stool with Giardia. So soft stool technically would be some form of diarrhea. 
and you treat the animal for the journey, which is just another intestinal parasite, which can come from, um, you know, if you're buying a puppy from a place maybe that's not that clean and the, the uh, mother is infected and she's pooping and then the puppies are, you know, around all that feces. So it's certainly possible it's transmitted that way. It can also be transmitted uh, via water that's contaminated or even food if it's contaminated. And the Giardia is a disease that's zoonotic. We already talked about rabies. Rabies is a zoonotic disease. It's transmitted from animals to people. So Giardia and and roundworms are zoonotic diseases. They can be transmitted from your kitten or puppy or adult dog or adult cat to human beings. That's why, especially with children and even you, ideally, if you're handling a, a young animal, you should always wash your hands afterwards because you just don't know the the status of that animal regarding um, intestinal parasites. So intestinal parasites, a uh, big one in young animals, viral disease is another big one. And there's multiple viruses. There's viruses such as there's a dog coronavirus and there's a dog rotavirus as examples that can cause soft stools. Generally, it's just soft stool slash diarrhea. There's likely to be no vomiting, but again, every dog is different. So you might get vomiting there. Uh, so let's talk about maybe an older animal. Now, cats, as they age, one of the problems with cats and uh, is is renal failure, kidney failure. And what happens there is the kidney is basically a filter. It's trying to filter out the toxins in the body through the blood into the glomerulus and out into the urine, retain as much of the electrolytes in the body as is possible. And then one of the clinical signs of renal failure, the first clinical sign might be that the cat's vomiting quite a bit. You know, usually if an animal has vomiting, uh, excuse me, has renal failure or is having trouble with the kidneys, the animal might be off its feet a little bit. Uh, it might be drooling a little bit because the animal's nauseous because those toxins that the kidneys would normally excrete are building up in the blood. So that's not an uncommon thing in cats. Dogs can have kidney failure too, so it would be very similar to what a cat would have. And you would have vomiting there. You can have diarrhea, but maybe not. Uh, let's talk about another possibility is you can have intestinal diseases, such as an intussusception, which is basically, if you think about it, it's, it's what an intussusception is, is the bowel. Most likely it would happen in the small intestine because there's quite a bit of small intestine in your average dog or cat uh, in the jejunum, which is the, the biggest portion of the small intestine, it's several feet in, in these animals. You can get the telescoping of one piece of bowel into the, into another piece. So what happens is you sort of get two tubes that slide together, and when that happens, because these are soft tissues, these are not hard tissues, you get an obstruction, and you can get an obstruction such that food cannot pass. And then what are you going to have? You're going to have vomiting, or maybe the animal again is off feed, or the animal has diarrhea. And intussusceptions can happen in young animals with a heavy worm burden. And animals are, are dewormed. And if the worm burden is so heavy that when an animal is dewormed, those um, intestinal parasites will die. And if the burden is high enough, the animal won't be absorbing those bodies. It'll be trying to pass them out. And if there's so many, they're going to act as a plug because they all die together and they'll sort of wrap around each other. And then that can cause an obstruction in and of itself on top of creating an intussusception thing. Also, intussusceptions can come and go, so they can slide in and out, and that can be a real difficult diagnosis. Okay, so there's intussusceptions. Uh, let's talk about cancer. Cancer, certainly of the intestines. Lymphoma is a common cancer in animals. Can impact the GI tract, and if you get GI lymphoma, you're going to get vomiting and diarrhea. Now, it also depends on where in the GI tract this cancer um, is affected. The seventy percent of the immune system is coming from the intestinal tract. So the intestinal tract has lots of lymph tissue, and lymphoma is cancer of the lymph tissue. And if the uh, cancer is in the bowel wall, then you're going to get an abnormality in the bowel wall, which is the bowel wall is where is the interface between the food. We digest it in the intestines and the bloodstream, and it's there to protect us, protect the pet. But there's awful lot of allergens also, and allergens um, 
stimulation of the immune system happens because there's lots of lymph tissue in the bowel wall itself. They're totally normal functions normally, but if there's cancer, then there's then there's enlargement. Usually, there's growth. There can be, for example, the the tumor gets so large that it's actually causing a physical obstruction. Also, that the tumor can break through into the uh, lumen, the interior of the intestine, and then you can get bleeding, and that can happen all throughout the GI tract. It can even happen in the large intestine. It just depends. Okay, so. There's cancers, again, it can happen in dogs and cats. So there are causes of diarrhea, uh, irrespective of vomiting for a minute. And uh, one of them would be a bacterial infection inside the intestines. And that is a fairly common problem in both dogs and cats. Uh, for an example, German shepherds are prone to uh, what's called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth in the upper GI tract. And that impacts their B vitamin um, folate and cobalamin uh, B vitamins, which, uh, you know, they'll have diarrhea and they'll be uh, B vitamin deficient until that, until that infection is addressed. And then the same thing in cats, although cats may have these infections that um, the bacteria actually moves retrograde. That means it moves up the opposite. It goes basically against the grain. So bacteria can move up, um, from the bile duct, from the small intestine into the bile duct and into the gallbladder and into the pancreas and secondarily into the liver. So you can get an infection and long-term inflammation of those three organs. Gallbladder sort of technically is its own um, organ, but it's basically just a sac that's holding bile. And uh, it's in dogs and cats, and it's on the uh, underneath side of the um, liver and uh, when animals or people eat uh, a meal, especially a fatty meal, bile is going to be secreted into the uh, upper small intestine, the duodenum there, and that's going to assist with the breakdown of the fats in that meal. So you can get chronic problems in cats, and that would also probably lead to a certain amount of vomiting in those animals. You know, my goal today is not to give you every possible diagnosis for vomiting and diarrhea. I'm hoping that you're starting to see that there's a a wide possible uh, differential diagnosis list for animals with vomiting and diarrhea. And it's really the veterinarians, obviously it's the veterinarian's job to decipher what's really going on. And it's not always very straightforward. Now, taking a history from you, the owner, would be obviously quite critical. And that's when you'd have to think back. And and I, you know, on a Monday, when you come in and you work in a small animal hospital, Monday is usually a sort of dreaded day because that's when you knew that animals, uh, where you'd have quite a few cases of vomiting or diarrhea or vomiting and diarrhea because people are, are home more, they're doing things over the weekend, you know, they might be having a party. And, you know, it's not uncommon uh, you know, you're having a pizza party, maybe it's just the kids, and what happens, a dog gets a hold of a pizza crust, and boom, you can have an animal that is really feeling very poorly. Sometimes I found, or in my opinion, I think tomato sauce is not the greatest thing for dogs. I don't know how well they digest it. And animals would come in on a Monday, and then you'd have to you know, query the owners, and I'd say, okay, so, you know, what did the animal have a day or two days ago? I'll say, did he get anything abnormal or she, what have you? And I'll say, oh, yeah, well, I gave him a piece of, you know, pizza crust. Well, here we go. You know, dogs don't do great when some dogs do fine. Don't get me wrong. There's plenty of dogs where people say, like I had mentioned before, uh, about fried chicken. Yeah, sure. I feed my dog, you know, a fried chicken, a carcass, whatever. I have seen that too. But, you know, that might be your individual pet, but that's not necessarily everybody's pet. And there's plenty of animals that, you know, are fine on their dog food, what have you, and then they get some human food. And whatever is in that human food is just not digestible to them. Maybe they have a uh, an intolerance to one of the ingredients. Doesn't mean they're allergic, but it's just like people, if there's something that doesn't agree with you, it's going to upset your GI tract. And an upset GI tract sometimes leads to vomiting and or diarrhea or both. Uh, animals. So a couple of other um, common problems. Pancreatitis is a big one. Nobody really understands exactly what the cause of pancreatitis is in 
in animals and it can be a diet related it can be for example in cats with this bacteria that uh, is coming up from the uh, upper gi tract probably more like coliforms coliform bacteria pancreatitis can be quite painful it can it can lead to vomiting it can lead to inappetence it can lead to nausea where you're getting drooling it can cause diarrhea i had a case in a in a miniature poodle that was a relative it was a puppy it was about eight nine months old and the owners come were complaining that the dog always had soft stool and did a lot of the common things eventually took blood work and sometimes pancreatitis is a is a strange disease because sometimes you can have pancreatitis but your blood tests do not match there's no increase in the enzyme levels of amylase and lipase which i said which can be tested for in the blood but you can the animal still can have a raging pancreatitis so those two tests even though they're included in a blood panel in the chemistry portion of uh, blood work it, they're not very sensitive and you, like I said, you can have inflammation and you can even have abscesses in there. And sometimes you can have what's called a sterile abscess where there's just so much inflammation that the body starts to wall it off. But pancreatitis, it can be managed now that puppy, uh, we put the animal on special um, dog food and uh, from Purina and the animal actually did great. So I don't know why it happened that way, but it happened that way in that puppy, which again, is that's an outlier puppy. I don't think I'd ever seen another case like that. Usually, pancreatitis would occur in an older dog, so that can all be medically managed. Gallbladder disease can be medically managed, although it can be surgical. So if I go back to, for a minute, the history, veterinarians going to ask questions. You know, you want to give them as thorough a history as is possible and answer questions truthfully, even though it might, you know, you might feel uncomfortable answering them truthfully. It's going to help the veterinarian. It's going to guide their, their number one, their, their treatment of the animal. And number two, hopefully allow them to arrive at the uh, correct diagnosis. So just to go back for one minute, if we talk about that pancreatitis case, and I mentioned that the blood work was possibly not normal in, a, in an animal with pancreatitis, there's other treat or diagnostic testing that can be done, such as radiography or uh, ultrasonography. There are such things as MRIs and CAT scans for animals. Uh, you know, not that they're not normal, but you know, now you're talking a, a higher, a much higher cost to run those tests. So, and that would not be the norm for a, a general animal practice. That might happen later on, but initially they're probably going to run X-rays, pull blood work, and administer some treatment. And some of these treatments, for example, pancreatitis, can be a fatal problem and it can be quite painful. So that probably, depending on how painful the animal is, necessitate uh, staying in the hospital versus uh, outpatient treatment. If the patient is really um, not expressing that much pain, it can be managed uh, medically at home. So uh, I hope also you're getting a sense that there can be a very varied uh, range of treatments from outpatient to inpatient. It can be diet changes. It can be multiple treatments. And sometimes surgeries might be required. Uh, the gastronomy to remove those razor blades in that dog's stomach. I did have a case once in the middle of the night when I was working in an emergency practice. It was a little dog, something along the lines of um, Welsh Corgi, or it was a Dachshund or some such animal, dog-shaped type animal. And it had uh, scarfed down an entire rib bone, and I believe it was a uh, it was a beef rib bone, and those are rather large. And when I X-rayed the dog, the the rib bone was perpendicular to the uh, axis of the back. Now remember, dogs walk on their four legs, so their back is now parallel to the ground. It's horizontal where ours is vertical, and the rib bone basically was almost the entire size of the dog. So I operated on a dog and took that bone out of there. So you would be, again, shocked to see what animals can eat when you don't think that it's possible to actually swallow it, but the animal did swallow it. Uh, so surgery, yes, uh, a lot of these cases are going to require surgery. Some of them might um, require endoscopy. Some of them might require, if you have an animal, let's say, that has um, what's called infiltrative disease of the bowel. I had mentioned lymphoma there, which is a type of cancer. There can be other types of infiltrative disease. We can get inflammatory cells inside the bowel wall, maybe because there's a chronic infection or the animal's immune system is stimulated. And the only way you're going to get a diagnosis is to operate on the animal and take 
take pieces of tissue called bi which we would call a biopsy and you send them out for a pathologist to look at them under a microscope and then they can give you a better sense of what disease process is actually going on because they will be able to tell you what kind of cells are infiltrating that tissue and then hopefully you'll be able to find a course of treatment now um I had sort of a, not really a specialty, but I was really great at identifying animals with allergies. And allergies in animals, pretty much like human beings, take take three clinical courses. You can have animals without allergies would result in a skin disease. You know, that's your scratchy dog, that's your itchy dog, that's your dog losing hair, that's your dog with a lot of red skin. And that would also include ear infections, not uncommon. I myself have a, have a have a Labrador retriever and ear problems are quite common in them. And I know she's got, I can probably talk about this another day in more depth, but she's got some allergies. She's got an allergy issue. You can, uh, the allergies can also take the form of an upper respiratory type problem where people with hay fever get a runny nose, itchy eyes, um, will cough, things like that. Dogs can certainly get the exact same problem. And then finally, you can get a a, a GI issue where you can get vomiting or diarrhea or both. And I've seen it often enough. And managing the allergies is the only way to to handle it. You can manage the allergies medically. Now you can take some testing. You can go to a, a specialist. You can go to a veterinary dermatologist and they can inject the animal with a small amount of antigen and find out what the animal's allergic to. You can also have a blood test run that can test for food allergens and environmental allergens. And you'd be surprised what dogs are actually allergic to or cats even for that matter. And then the goal of if you're doing the blood testing or the allergy testing is to come up with a regimen of treatment for those animals. So you use desensitization, mostly injections, although there is an oral form of desensitization not quite as effective as the injectable kind. And the injectable comes with its own caveats and possible side effects. So owners have to be um, carefully trained and one, give the injections and two, look for uh, side effects. So allergies can be managed and allergies sometimes are seasonal allergies and sometimes they're non-seasonal. And it's non-seasonal meaning that in January, February, when it technically should be cold out, this is here in Florida, cover your ears for a minute for the most part. But uh, any place where there's four seasons, if an animal in the middle of the winter is scratching and itching, that animal probably has non-seasonal allergies. Now, you know, you need to check for fleas and things like that. But if there's no fleas about any animal's got a problem in January, February, then it would be non-seasonal. Seasonal means, you know, spring, summer, fall. Basically, the animal may be in the springtime with certain grasses, plants blossoming. The animal's going to be scratching more, itching more, maybe has hair loss, and then it goes away as the winter approaches. Again, and just just more and more and more about vomiting and diarrhea, more potential problems. So the veterinarian is going to query you. Be honest. Tell them everything you know. Think back. Uh, and then the veterinarian is going to have to do their physical exam and they might find, you know, that there's pain in the animal. They're going to have to do a rectal exam because maybe they're finding a mass back there, but they want to look at the quality of the stool. Hopefully you've bought some in so they can run some testing on it, or they might need to, to get more feces to run testing on. Depending on how sick the patient is, they're going to uh, recommend blood work, maybe radi- maybe radiographs. Maybe the animal looks sick enough that they're going to recommend that you hospitalize the animal. Maybe they're going to recommend, oh, well, the dog is doing okay, can treat it at home, and then wait and see. And so all those paths are certainly possible paths. So when you're a veterinarian, when you get an animal with vomiting and diarrhea, you have to take into account the breed of the animal, the age of the animal, the animal's environment, how long the animal's been ill, has this had this issue before. Uh, has it gotten in anything toxic? Uh, did it get any, you know, food that's abnormal? Did it potentially eat something like that rib bone? Or uh, corn cob is another very common one. I did have a case in um, maybe an Australian poly, an Australian type herding dog. Anyway, the owner brought it in, and long story short, we ended up taking radiographs, and you could see 
boom, there it was. There was a corn cob in the in the small intestine. So again, that is not going to pass. That would require surgery to extract it. And I'm sure many of you listening to this podcast have either heard or experienced this with your own dog that gets into the garbage or maybe something drops and then dogs are, it's, it's like my dog, be a vacuum cleaner before you know it, the dog's got this thing and it, and it swallowed it whole. And that just goes to show you when I told you the dogs chew very little, it really is true. They're not going to chew quite quite as much as you think. They're not going to sit there for five minutes gnawing on something. Sometimes they do, but certain objects they can swallow uh, whole pretty quickly. So vomiting and diarrhea. So you're going to ask yourself, I, I think there's a couple of, of points that I want to make. So number one, vomiting and diarrhea, one bout of vomiting, one bout of diarrhea. Usually, we can't say this 100%, usually is not a life-threatening problem versus an animal is continually vomiting or continually having diarrhea. I'm saying multiple bouts in a day. And if it's especially watery diarrhea, that can dehydrate an animal very quickly, and especially a puppy or a kitten. So any vomiting in a puppy or a kitten that's not a tiny amount that happens one time. If it if it's a lot or it's happening multiple times, that's an emergency. You need to call your local veterinarian right away. And in an adult animal, it's going to depend basically on how much is being vomited and what's in the vomit. If there's blood or if there's blood in the stool, again, that would necessitate a call to the veterinarian. But a one-off vomiting from a dog is not not the end of the world if it's a big animal. And if the animal is apparently acting normal, then it's probably not as big an issue. And I'll talk about how to manage that in a minute. But if the animal doesn't look right, it doesn't matter if it's one-time vomiting or not. That animal is depressed. It's sad, per se, using air quotes there. It's laying around. Maybe it's looking at its belly a lot or something, or its belly looks bloated, or maybe it's breathing really rapidly, or they can't get comfortable. They're sort of moving around quite a bit on, on their dog bed, and they just keep getting up, and they move, and they move. That tells you that they're not feeling right, that you need to call a veterinarian. Now, to the other side of that is multiple vomitings, multiple diarrhea as an adult. An adult animal can die from vomiting and diarrhea, again, mostly because of dehydration, unless there's something else going on. And if there's an infection in there, in the gut, uh, animal can get in the shock from the infection and also dehydration because of the vomiting and diarrhea. There's other problems where bowel can twist on itself, a, a torsion or a volvulus, and that can be a fatal problem relatively quickly. Or in the case of, I said, a bloat where the stomach flips up and around, that can be an emergency in animals. Uh, actually do not have many times, not a lot of time in which to um, have that problem corrected or else it could be fatal. So vomiting diarrhea, while it sounds gross, and sometimes it even is gross for me, can be a, a very mild problem, but it can also be a very severe problem. So if you ever have any questions about what's happening with your pet, just call your veterinarian. They'll appreciate it. They would much rather see a problem earlier, number one, rather than later. They'd much rather see a problem, uh, you know, at uh, nine o'clock on a Friday morning versus five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. But, you know, sometimes you can't help it as long as the animal, you know, not as long, but uh, sometimes things do occur acutely, meaning right away. And the animal was fine in the morning, and then you come home at night, and then you find there's a tremendous amount of vomit and or diarrhea, which I would again say most of you listening that have dogs have come back to find an animal that has had quite a bit of uh, left a, left you some presence, as, as I would say, or a cat. Cats will leave you quite a bit of, uh, of uh, can leave you quite a bit of presence as well. So I can't cover every possible disease. I've just rattled off a few of the semi-common ones. I would say there's many, many others, again, depending on age and what other organ system might be affected. So I've covered what to do if your animal does have vomiting and diarrhea. If you're in doubt, call your veterinarian. If it's a one-off and then the animal looks fine, not really an issue. So what do you do if there's a one-off with vomiting? Now, normally what I would say is uh, you want to pull up any food or water. If it's a kitten or a puppy, you need to call a vet because most of the time, if I was uh, your vet, I would say I'd want to see that animal to make sure it's fine. Again, depending on how long you've had it, where it's been, and what uh, veterinary treatments you've already had, such as, you know, have you brought the puppy in, let's say, for 
first series of vaccines? Has it been dewormed? What have you? So let's say you have a larger dog and one vomit. Wasn't a lot of food. That means the dog is digesting mostly what, what let's say, it ate for breakfast. And the dog looks fine. The dog's acting normal. I would pull up any food or water, and I would start with, them. I'd say, you know, a few hours of not giving the dog any water. And then what I would do is put the water bowl down, but I would only put a little bit in it because you, what you don't want is to give the animal a bowl of water, and then it just stands there for five minutes drinking, 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 and then just that by itself cause vomiting. So you usually want to start off with smaller quantities of water to make sure that the animal is able to hold it down. And if the animal's holding it down, that's great. If the animal can't hold that water down and you put only a little bit down, just goes for dogs and cats, call your veterinarian, be a major problem. Okay. So let's say the dog does hold or the cat does hold the water down, can hold off. I probably would not try to feed that dog that night or that cat. I would wait until the morning. And I don't want to get into all the possible things that you could do for uh, how to treat the the vomiting with diet. But what I would say is the next day, offer them probably half of their normal amount of dog food. Because again, you don't want them, air quotes, wolfing it down, eating too fast and getting a lot of um, air in the stomach. And if they're good uh, you know, that evening, then I would say feed them their normal ration. If everything is fine, then, then go ahead. If it happens again, call a veterinarian. And the same thing I would say about a cat. Uh, and in a cat, normally we're going to want to treat for hairballs because that's a very simple thing to do. And it's so common in cats. Like I, I mentioned how cats develop hairballs. So there's not much else, I think, in terms of vomiting and diarrhea for this podcast, because we could get into all sorts of things about diet. Water generally is not a problem, provided that's potable water, which of course uh, is the only thing I would recommend that you allow your dog to drink and potable means that it's safe for human consumption. If it's safe for human consumption, then it's going to be safe for your pet. If it's not potable water, then it could be a problem because some diseases, uh, I mentioned Giardia, can be transmitted via water. And a dog can certainly pick that up. If you take your dog on a hike for a minute, let's say you're going on a hike and the dog's drinking out of a stream, perfect place for Giardia to be. And so you could have just been hiking with your dog and then, it, you know, the next day it's got terrible diarrhea. Well, it's certainly possible it's Giardia. And, you know, there's no home remedies for treating Giardia that you have to bring the animal to the vet. I think I've covered quite a bit about giving you multiple different examples of cases that I've seen in my career. I've thrown at you quite a number of possible problems from organ problems to hormonal problems. Uh, hormonal problems. Another one that just comes to my head is Cushing's disease, which is um, a problem with the adrenal glands. The uh, animal's putting out too much epinephrine and cortisol, and that itself can lead to diarrhea. Cushing's disease means that there's a tumor up in the uh, pituitary gland, and it's sending too much hormone stimulation down to the adrenal glands. Sometimes there's adrenal tumors too, which can happen. Um, Hormonal problems, toxicity problems, problems with viruses, bacteria, intestinal parasites, mechanical problems like interceptions where the bowel, I said, telescopes in on itself. We can have torsions of the bowel. We can have bloat. We can have gas-filled portions of intestines. We can have cancer in the intestines. We can have something uh, such as allergies uh, causing a problem. So there's a whole gamut of problems that can go into vomiting and diarrhea and a lot of different uh, diagnostic modalities that you need to use to uh, make a proper diagnosis. Sometimes diagnosis is straightforward. Sometimes it's not. Some of these problems are going to be acute or turn problems are going to, going to self-correct. And sometimes there may be more chronic problems that are getting worse and worse and the animal can dehydrate and that's going to necessitate uh, more complicated medical care. Sometimes it can be done outpatient. Sometimes it has to be inpatient. Again, that's going to be up to you to decide. The veterinarian is going to give you a recommendation and um, they're going to give you an estimate for care. And they'll do their best to give you an estimate for how long the animal is going to be in a hospital if everything goes successfully. Remember, unfortunately, some of these diseases such as pancreatitis can be fatal, even though the veterinarian and their team is doing their best not every animal is going to survive. Not every animal is going to survive a bloat because it's not just the, the, the problem. It is all of the downstream problems, such as shock, that the animal is going to have to try to get over with the care, uh, you know, with the, with the veterinary care and also within your uh, budget. 
because remember, any of these inpatient problems are going to be expensive and the expenses are going to accrue very rapidly, especially with, you know, if you start talking about MRIs and CAT scans, multiple blood tests, multiple uh, ultrasounds, it, uh, it can get that expensive very quickly. So I've covered history, physical exam, diagnostic testing, I covered treatment, I've covered uh, medical treatment, I've covered surgery, I've covered a bunch of, of examples of um, causes of vomiting, diarrhea. I've mentioned puppies, kittens, and adult animals. So you can see there's quite a breadth here, and it, vomiting and diarrhea can be quite challenging for a veterinarian, and every veterinarian is going to develop their own what I'd call basically checklist of how they're running things and how they're thinking about vomiting and diarrhea, and also what breed they're thinking of. And and again, um, to my mind, any Labrador Golden Retriever has a foreign body until I prove otherwise. So what does that mean? Well, to me, that means if I'm going to send a patient home, I'm going to do outpatient treatment, I'm going to administer certain treatments to that animal. If that animal has one bout of vomiting or diarrhea after that, then to me, I likely it's got a foreign body. It's not 100%. It doesn't mean it can't happen, for example, in a German Shepherd or Rottweiler or what have you. But that tells me that the animal is sicker than I thought or that the problem is not a benign problem. There's more of an active problem, like I said, such as a foreign body. And that requires basic, that's basically going to require surgery. I think the only thing that I could tell you would be if there was a specific disease that somebody had a question about that I could talk about the origins of the disease, the pathophysiology, how the disease is impacting the body. Uh, but uh, I think I've given you quite a quite enough examples now, and we're running at uh, almost 55 minutes. Well, that's the unedited version. I will let you know that I do edit these podcasts pretty hard, and I try to take out as many ums, likes, offs, long pauses as is possible, because I just don't think that that's worth your time to listen to all that nonsense. I do keep trying to improve my my diction my flow, although you've probably noticed that the flow of my speaking is not always as as smooth as I would like. I am trying to think a lot of times before I actually speak, so sometimes my the flow of my speech is not as, as good as I would like. And, uh, you know, I'm still getting over the flu, and, uh, you know, it's amazing to me how long you can actually go. Now, I feel great. I have some minor problems secondary to the flu right now. And you can see my voice is just a little bit hoarser than normal. So I do quite a bit of uh, tea drinking during these podcasts, which does help when I do like honey. So that's that's helpful too. So that's vomiting and diarrhea in dogs, cats in a nutshell. At least a nutshell that's about an hour long. Anyway, I thank you for your time and your patience. I hope you enjoy this podcast. I do. I'd love to hear from people. You can uh, reach me at askdrmatt at proton.me. That's A-S-K-D-R-M-A-T-T at P-R-O-T-O-N dot M-E. Super simple address. And uh, I'll see you at the next podcast. All right, everybody, take care.